This is the Social Distance Podcast, and today I'm talking to Simon Colgan. Simon's an Irishman, uh, he's a doctor, and he lives and works in Calgary in the province of Alberta in Canada. And he's also the founder of CAMP, the Calgary Allied Mobile Palliative Program. So CAMP provides palliative care and end-of-life care to people who are homeless or who are in vulnerable housing situations. Simon and me spoke on Wednesday the 27th of May 2020, at which point Canada had 27,624 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and 2,235 confirmed deaths. So, as I mentioned, Simon's originally from Ireland. He's from the north of Ireland, the same as myself. So we ended up having quite a lot to talk about, as you'll hear, about justice and identity and other aspects of how to make sense of the world. But first off, I asked him to explain to me the origins of CAMP, the Calgary Allied Mobile Palliative Programme. Right, so CAMP started in 2016. Um, and it's, I would say fundamentally, it's an advocation and uh, navigation program. So I started work in palliative care full time in 2014. And it was pretty clear straight from the get go that um, palliative care as a sort of a profession had been built around this sort of ideal kind of person who had a family and had support. And, and there was very little thought, I felt, uh, in regards to people who are marginalised and homeless. And, and unfortunately, when I started to work in the hospital and do it more and more, I came across quite a few people who are marginalised and were just really drifting, unfortunately, when they got discharged. And people then died in you know extreme pain, discomfort and loneliness, which really started to bother me quite you know, significantly. And from that, I just uh, randomly one day Googled, you know, uh, homelessness and palliative care just to find out if anybody in in Canada was doing anything similar, even in the world was doing anything similar. And I came across one person in Toronto who had a program that was just started looking at trying to uh, connect with people on the street, a sort of mobile program. And him and I became really, really fast friends. And from that I went downtown in Calgary and there's about three and a half thousand people homeless in Calgary. So Calgary's got a population of about 1.2 million, give you an idea of the size of it. Um, And we think about 900 of those are chronically homeless uh, individuals. So people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, And what that means is uh, people who are just having real difficulty uh, getting any sort of uh, foothold in, in housing. Um, So it was a big, big problem, right? Um, So I went downtown. I started to go to a lot of the agencies and just say, look, do you see any gaps in end-of-life care for people who are marginalized and homeless? And it was pretty quick, uh, a yes all around. And I met a a nurse who had similar concerns as I had. And we just said, hey, why don't we just take a chance, get some funding, and let's just try and see if we can make this a little bit better for people. And really what we do is we – we try to connect people to to the care that you would expect people to to have at end of life. So home care and good consultations and all these sort of things. But it's very, very difficult for people who are homeless and have huge amounts of issues with the social terms of health. Um, 
to navigate that system, right? So people are sort of unfortunately bound in almost structural vulnerability. So not just homelessness and marginalization, but they're they're sort of held down by the structures that are in place, right? So not having a home, for instance, you can't get home care and you know, they have difficulty trying to get people on the phones because people often may not have a phone or they may not have an address. So lots and lots of small barriers initially that people don't see. And then you add in mental health and you add in uh, substance use disorder. and You've got a whole um, a huge problem. Right. So it was very clear from us when we started to do camp how people who are marginalized really died in some very, very poor circumstances. Um, and they just weren't being heard, right, Dominic? So, like, yeah. um, people just died with, I felt, uh, really, really poor, uh, you know, no end-of-life care, no dignity, and in deep loneliness. And it was, it, it has been shocking, and it still remains shocking. Um, but at least we're doing something to rectify some of that. So, in terms of the nuts and bolts, how was that affected when um, Canada went into lockdown? I guess that would be in mid-March. Now, was that a regional state-by-state? State? Yeah, well, sort of, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was definitely a little bit of a delay in Canada. Um, but, of course, uh, yes, state-by-state state it started, to, yeah. or province, as we call them here. Uh, um, province, they, sorry, yeah. Yeah, they started, to, uh, they started to close. But it was pretty, federally, they got involved pretty quickly and and things changed. But yes, there was definitely panic in the uh, homeless sector because, uh, as you can imagine, we've got big, big shelters. People are on mats, maybe two, three hundred people in a room. How do you actually socially isolate? So mm-hmm. there was definitely panic downtown for quite a number of weeks, um, wondering how we would actually be able to socially isolate people. I have to say we've done a fairly good job here in Alberta. Um, we have opened up um, what's known as isolation facilities. So these are maybe repurposed buildings such as old uh, hotels or motels. And they are bringing people in and isolating people who either have COVID or are waiting for the results of their swab. Um, So they're trying to, to, to try and get people out of shelter, these kind of shelter situations quickly um, Mm -hmm. to try and identify and isolate people quickly. But it's still a big problem because um, people who are experiencing homelessness, um, you know, when you when you when you're not kind of settled, or you may be couch surfing, or you're you're going from shelter to shelter, it, it, it can be a really really big problem, right? Um, thankfully, I have to say we have certainly have had cases, but we we thankfully the the uh, the health services and the government here were pretty quick to give in extra resources and PPEs and these sort of things. So, uh, so far, Touchwood, it hasn't been too bad. Having said that, I think the bigger questions are going to arise when, at the end of all this, then, with people who are housed in some of these isolation facilities, what does that look like when lockdown, you know, uh, isn't as necessary? So is the idea that once they're free of infection that they would be released back out into the community without any follow-up or I mean I guess part of the challenge is that it's hard to keep track of people when they're vulnerably housed there. Very hard to keep track of people yeah and I think uh, there's a lot of media interest I certainly have been contacted by people locally and I certainly have seen a lot of people writing about and discussing like what happens to people that you're housing and because they've been able to get these sort of temporary housings for people and people at risk you know people maybe 
who are experiencing homelessness, but multiple diseases. So that we, we've definitely been able to, and there's a response, but there is concern definitely from people saying what happens at the end of all of this, because there is a strong drive for a sort of housing first model here. Right. And there's definitely, I even just saw recently today, an email coming out, uh, uh, sort of a national email um, requesting an end to homelessness completely um, you know, on the back of COVID, sort of saying, look, you know, we've been able to do and house people more quickly and isolate people more quickly. We have to keep this job going. Um, so I think I think we're going to see it, you know. What made the difference between the urgency since the middle of March and what was happening before? Well, uh, yeah, so that's a good question, right? Um, I think there was a sense. So, okay, so I think homelessness, as you probably know, and I'm sure it's the same in Australia, is still a very invisible problem, right? Um, as we would call it. I mean, people are aware that people are homeless, but it's sort of by and large invisible, like somebody else is doing something about this. Suddenly you have a disease that you think, oh man, if this spreads, people who are experiencing homelessness could actually affect the general, the bigger population, right? So I I felt there was a little bit of a a response to that, uh, a more global, which is a better way to actually look at it. Like these are citizens as well. And an impact in a shelter will have a massive problem for the rest of the city. So I think that, to be honest, was part of the driving factor, was the the understanding that this could really get out of control and, and affect many, many people on top of it. It is funny that COVID has highlighted some of these things and highlighted some of these inequities. I, I think it's going to take a long time to probably digest exactly why, but I have to say, I think that's part of it. I think it was for the greater good. It's like, we better mm-hmm. take care of this before this really becomes a huge problem for all of us. I mean, it sounds trite, but in fact, the the old phrase that just sprang into my mind what, there was, where there's a will, there's a way, right? One hundred percent, one hundred percent. It's amazing how quickly we can get people housed, how quickly we can get people isolated when there's a threat, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which has been, uh, which is bemusing a lot of people as well. To a lot of people in street meds and the media, like our, uh, think that that's quite. So I, I, I hope, Dominic, to be honest with you, there will be still a lot of pressure after this, to, um, to really tackle homelessness and. Um, because we know we can do it if there's a threat. So why can't we do this continually, right? What were the challenges for helping your vulnerable people get into those sheltered situations if if maybe they, they didn't want to or, you know, they, they are uncomfortable with their interactions with authority, you know, all those different aspects of the experience that people have when they're in vulnerable situations? Yeah, it's interesting. Like it, 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 there certainly has. I've heard reports that there's been issues here and there. But in general, I still think people want to do the best for the population. People come together. You know, a crisis brings everyone together. And I think um, people who are experiencing homelessness are, uh, in many ways, are no different. But certainly, there is mental health and uh, things that can be fed into you know, I guess, you know, a pandemic, it doesn't bode very well for people who have got paranoid ideation and mental health issues. So there's certainly, I think there's certainly a lot of 
concern that that has been exacerbated by it. But I I do know a lot of people have been very willing to help out um, to make sure the greater good of people uh, is taken into account, you know. Mm -hmm. So I I haven't heard, like, and I, I do keep in contact with a lot of people in different areas who are running some of these uh, facilities. And, you know, they would say by and large people do want to help and they do want to do the best for people, right? Right, yeah. Looking more specifically at at palliative care and providing palliative care for vulnerable populations, what draws you to that work? Um, Well, I think it is the the fact that you can have a very... very big impact uh, in a person's life at a very vulnerable and a very traumatic part of their uh, their health and their life. I mean, I like the fact that we can, it gives me a lot of satisfaction to, to make people comfortable at the end of life. Um, I really believe very, very strongly in the dignity of life and the dignity in death as well too. Um, I also, it's, it's made me think a lot about my own um, existence and my own um, what I feel uh, is important. And people who 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 have treated over the years um, have taught me a lot about what it's like to be a better person and a better husband and a better father. And um, there's, I, I'd say, I get as much from um, watching people die as I get from helping them. So uh, for me, it's. It's funny, it's kind of turned me into a, a kind of a mini philosopher, but it truly it truly has impacted an awful lot of the way I look at life now. Um, but I also love the medical side of it. I like the fact that we can actually make a difference in people's lives. Yeah, um, It's not nearly as depressing as people would think. So they often, when I talk to people, people kind of go, oh man, you know, being a palliative physician, that's seriously heavy. But I actually would disagree i would say it actually makes me really appreciate life a lot more um and uh you know when you contemplate your own death and to contemplate that you're not going to be around for a long time you also want to say like well what what are the things that are important to me as a human being you know so um yeah it, it's been very very impactful for me you know when you talk about then being a better person and being a better father is that what you mean what what do you mean by that yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of time, um, I'm very influenced by kind of Stoic philosophy and kind of Buddhist philosophy and the contemplation of your your own mortality and your own death can actually really help you as a, as a human being. And, and you know, you, you kind of get rid of a lot of kind of selfish tendencies. And that's what I love about palliative care at the end of life, because people will show you what's really important, right? So as people are dying, um, you realize that the external, all the things that we already intuitively know, like external things like cars and houses, it really doesn't matter. It's about connection to people. It's uh, about love for your family, your friends. Uh, those are the things that really give people meaning in life. Um, and it's just it's just really nice to be reminded about that every day, you know, and people will often say to you, it's not even that you're witnessing, that people say to you, you know, make sure you value your life and make sure you value your spouse, make sure you value your family because I didn't, or I wish I had done more or, you know, people teach you an awful lot. Right. Yeah. Cause they're very honest. People are very honest. They've nothing to lose. Um, you know, they've lost everything. There's no, there's, there's no ego. There's no kind of 
bravado anymore. People often tend to be very, very honest. And I've had some really profound um, discussions with people at the end of life. And I've also seen people in a lot of regret. You know, I've seen a lot of people say, I, you know, I wish I'd done more. And people in a lot of existential suffering because they didn't do the things um, that they wish they had. They, they didn't spend enough time with their family. They didn't spend enough time with their kids. They made career ch- choices that they really did wish they hadn't. Um, I, I just, it's impossible not to be, um, I think, affected by palliative care, to be honest, and, and, and dealing with people who are, who are dying, you know. It's, it's a very privileged position, to be honest. Yeah, it's funny that you would say that because um, in my experience, I've, I've recorded quite a few oral history projects here and there, and I've always found that I come out from speaking in depth to somebody, I come out feeling like I have, um, what can I say, I have had one more part of the endless mystery of life has, has slotted into place or, you know, and it's not like that will ever, it's not like I'll ever reach a point where I have figured everything out, but um, like I'm putting together a mosaic and each person that I speak to helps me understand that one little square of of life do you know what i mean yeah yeah i mean there's a lovely statement i i picked up from somewhere that i keep telling the residents all the time which i think is a lovely um way to look at it is um you know people want to know and understand what's happening to them but more than that they want to be known and understood and uh i think that's a really really important thing for physician and healthcare workers just even in generally in hospital you know um, not just people who are dying but um you know people just want to be understood they want to be listened to and that goes right to the people who are experiencing homelessness the people that i you know help to look after uh, in camp it's the same thing people just want to be listened to and understood um and if we can do that and we can listen to people in a much more open and curious and kind of vulnerable way it's it's amazing the power of what other people can do to influence you as a person right if you're open to mm-hmm. it right because yeah. um, we're sort of caught up in our own narratives a lot of the time but uh, it's amazing what someone from a completely different background because certainly the people i look after who've who've been homeless have you know some really amazing and also very sad stories but they can teach you a lot about life you know um so I come home, I have to be honest, every day, Dom, and I'm super grateful for what I have, right? I mean, right. I'm not at all, I'm not pessimistic, I'm not sitting around, you know, a, a hypochondriacal wondering what I'm going to die from. I mean, these are all the things that people think happens. It's, it's much more the opposite than that. It's like, I'm actually super grateful because I know I'm not here for long. So what am I actually going to bring to life? You know, what am I going to um do tomorrow to help somebody you know what can i learn from somebody else and it's actually it's very energizing right it's Mm -hmm. the exact opposite of what you'd expect just like what you're saying when you were talking to people you know yeah so you're one doctor and am i right in thinking you have one uh, nurse who is in in the community typically on the ground on a day-to-day basis is that still how you how you work so yeah so i have to be totally honest and say my role has diminished remarkably over the last uh, year or two with camp because the the nurse navigator and now we have a health navigator are so proficient and so good at what they do uh, in navigation and advocacy that you don't actually really need uh, a very kind of medicalized view of it. Right. Um, so they actually run. So there's a nurse navigator 
and we run through, we're also connected to another program called Connect to Care, which also runs a program very similar to CAMP. They look after probably younger people, more addictions, mental health. CAMP would be, I guess, the the uh, palliative end of that. Right. But a very similar program. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, no, they, they, I've got a, a nurse navigator called Dan and a health navigator who's just uh, changing to another job. But Troy, it was a guy called Troy. And they were amazing, right? So, and they also have taught me a lot, right? Because to be a really good street uh, healthcare worker, you have to be an excellent communicator. And uh, yeah, another, you know, it's amazing the stuff that I've learned from people on the street as well too and healthcare workers and shelter workers and stuff it's mm. amazing right so how does the how does the funding work then because I, I noticed on your website that you received funding for a further year from april mm-hmm. of this year mm-hmm. so is it a year by year find the money kind of thing or yeah i'm hoping to be honest with you i'm hoping that we do get some sustainable funding um it, i'm not going to lie it has been challenging to go from year to year right um i think we are now you know collecting a lot more statistics and we have a lot more evidence to show that we we you actually save a huge amount of money not only by offering people a more dignified end of life but also using healthcare dollars more appropriately right right um, so I'm, my hope is really to bring that um, information and knowledge to the healthcare system here and just say, hey, look, come on, um, to run a program like this is is quite um, cheap compared to the dollars that actually saves. Um, the dollars, the, the dollar, so, you know, the, the dollar thing is interesting because the... Uh, 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 having to express something that you've just spoken about it in very philosophical and deep and meaningful kind of heartfelt terms but in order to make it make sense I guess within a healthcare industry scenario you have to have a dollar thing going on right well we unfortunately are in a situation where we had a change of government and it's quite conservative and they have made uh, strong uh, feelings that um, healthcare will be funding will be really um, under threat and, and the physicians, unfortunately, and their salaries. It's been quite a, all the way through COVID, which has been very stressful as well too. So we have we have a government in place who, unfortunately, it is about the dollars. And, and I agree, Dominic, I, it's something I loathe to talk about dollars and, and dignity in the same sentence. But unfortunately, um, it's a sign of the times. And I think now with COVID, and all the sort of um, the 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 money that has unfortunately been lost in certain things. I think we're going to have a lot of healthcare uh, cuts, unfortunately, coming up. But I think it behooves people to realise that actually running a pro- program like this and keeping people, giving people a what they want, but also it can actually be a much much cheaper way of running a healthcare system if you actually intervene at an earlier stage. Um, and we've shown it, we've proven it, and, and certainly in the other programs in Canada and possibly, I mean, I, I had a lady over from Sydney following us uh, not so long ago as well. So there's there's definitely programs elsewhere in the world that are looking at sort of upstreaming, you know, what's, what's called upstreaming determinants of health. So trying to intervene with people earlier to prevent these, this huge expenditure in money in, in the later stages. 
so unfortunately yeah like you say it's not <laughs> it's not great to talk about both in the same but unfortunately that's the reality you know well there was no implied criticism there i was just i was just struck by the i was just struck by the kind of strangeness of the juxtaposition but also yeah. the fact that you have to that you have to be able to justify what you do in terms of dollars saved right and unfortunately unfortunately yeah um i did hear the the prime minister of australia uh, maybe two days ago talked about the importance of getting the economy out of icu was the phrase he used and um i thought that was an interesting <laughs> turn of phrase given what everyone's just been going through and the fact that the recipe for getting out of icu is about uh, deregulation and um you know um slashing away at workers rights and all that sort of stuff but <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we, I think we've proved. Well, I think we've proven in healthcare. I think most of the healthcare uh, literature and and journals would say the biggest bang for your buck is actually upstream. Um, you know, getting people better mental health, better diets, more exercise. Those are the things that make the biggest impact on healthcare dollars. It's not uh, more fancy investigations and treatments and. You know, those are the things that are really expensive. So we we do, if we really want to save money um, and um, ironically give people what they want, it's actually a lot easier to intervene earlier um, yeah. and avoid avoid all this expenditure, you know. So is the, it's are, just hard to convince people. <laughs> are, the, are the political drivers then ideological? Is it about if we make cuts to the public system that people will be forced into an insurance based model or well i think i think for us we certainly from the homeless you know people experiencing homelessness um addiction and mental health unfortunately um and certainly in in our in our current kind of uh climate is still this you know you need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and the fact that you're mentally unwell and and addicted to medications is your own fault there's a there's a very a very old judeo-christian kind of ethos that unfortunately still runs through this kind of shame that's kind of associated with with uh, people experiencing homelessness and we need to we need to really understand what what causes homelessness and what causes poverty you know it's not people don't choose these things right mm -hmm. um it's a reflection of society in general. And I think um, we're finding a lot of kind of um, resistance to kind of, you know, safe consumption sites. We know we have safe consumption sites here in Canada, in Canada right? Yeah. Um, we have, our, the government now are, are, are trying to push more towards kind of detoxing people. But like, as I, you know, as we always try to explain to people is like detoxing someone, getting someone sober is not, is not the end of addiction and mental health. The end of addiction and mental health is actually connection, right? It's connecting people so that they feel connected, so they feel bonded. It's not just getting people sober. So we still have this strange, I don't know where it comes from. I, I call it Judeo-Christian, but still this belief that people just need to, you know, wise up and, and they'll be okay. And, and it's just trying to explain to people that know we need to put more money into mental health. We need to make, you know, education better. We have First Nations, um, an indigenous population here whose whose rights are 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 uh, really threatened on a daily basis. You know, those are the things that that 
that we need to address before we start saying we just need to detox everybody, right? Yeah, it, um, it, it is curious as well how, or noteworthy how pervasive the, the moral part of it is because, you know, I, I agree pretty much with everything that you've said in terms of your standpoint. And even I will have a knee-jerk reaction sometimes when I'm seeing something. You see a headline, you immediately have this kind of, oh, and it's it's so easy for that to be exploited, that that easy moralistic approach to um, people who are less fortunate or who have made, made bad decisions. I mean, we've all made bad decisions in our lives, right? It's just some have... Uh, bigger consequences than others because of the circumstances that people find themselves in where they don't have support systems and you know yeah well it's not a life you choose right and i don't think i've met anybody who has experienced homelessness or addiction or mental health that has ever said to me this is the life that i chose i think this is the life that unfortunately unfolded for them um, yes, some people make wrong decisions but a lot of people are forced into situations through you know, just poverty and um, lack of education and things that they had no control over, unfortunately. Um, and that's the saddest thing for 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 us witnessing is that many, many times it's not the person's fault that it's the whole situation, the whole social structure was against them from the start, you know? Yeah. Um, and I always see people as survivors. Like sometimes I just kind of think, wow, like this person actually made it to 50 after everything they've been through. So I definitely see people in a much different light than people, you know, I, I see people who are surviving, like despite everything else, which is deeply, deeply humbling to see people like that. You think like, how have you still managed to stay alive after everything that's been thrown at you? You know, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Right? Yeah. Um, so that we should be valuing that we should be looking at, they should be the holders of wisdom like how do you become resilient how do you keep your spirits up how do you like like it's unbelievable some of the stories that people have had to witness right i saw uh watched one of the videos on the camp website and um it featured two different folks who had uh, camp had worked with a woman and then a, mm -hmm. a man whose name I can't remember. Um, Sean. Sean. Sean, yeah. Sean. Sean with a W. Yeah. Who, mm -hmm. who yeah. told this amazing story about how when he was feeling vulnerable about uh, about his illness and his um, his likely death, he, he went away and hid under a blanket and cried before he came out. Yeah. It was yeah, an incredibly no powerful. With us. Yeah, yeah. He died a few years ago. Right. Um, uh, he, uh, yeah, he was a great character, Sean, um, and one of the few, one of the first people that we looked after. Um, but he was a gentleman who wanted to remain homeless. The, see, this is the other thing as well too that people don't realize is that there. We we also kind of feel like you know just people will get better if we just pe put people in houses and we you know. Pe People also have the right to make the choices that they want, and Sean was one of the uh, w one of those people that wanted to stay exactly where he was. You know, we offered him different housing options, but he wanted to stay within the shelter system because that's what he knew. Um, and we still managed to work with him and uh, treat his pain and make sure that he was um, looked after in hospital. But he remained uh, in the shelter system right up until his death. Um, 
Barbie was different. She was the other lady that you mm-hmm. saw. Yeah. Um, she she was probably the the instigator to camp um, for me because she had a really difficult uh, situation where she was quite easy to look after in hospital and her symptoms and these sort of things. But the wheels came off um, so quickly when she was discharged. Uh, she really bothered me. Her her trajectory and the way she died really bothered me. Um, and she was the one that uh, challenged me at the end when I asked her <laughs> what else we could have done for her. Uh, she looked me straight in the eye and she said, you need to do better for people like me <laughs> with her. And, uh, that was just a few hours before she died. And I, I, uh, I promised her that I would do something and I would try and do something to make it better because she just said, like, you just don't understand how people like us live. Um, you know, she saw me as a physician and uh, she probably had her own uh, ideation of who I was as a person. So, you know, she was right. You know, you don't know what it's like for me to live on the street. You don't know what it's like to be a woman on the street. You don't like know what it's like to die in the street. Uh, you need to do something better for this, right? Um, so, yeah, Barbie was a very special person. She died 2015, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Sean died a few years later. But, uh, yeah, yeah, they're big, big characters. <laughs> so... Going forward, are you are you anxious about about the um, the prospects of continuing the service, or how do you feel about that? I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping that that we can um, spread the word, you know, through things like podcasts and that sort of stuff. I I, I still hope that um, we get a lot of support here locally. Um, there's a lot of goodwill from people. I think it. It's going to be challenging in the climate, in the in the sort of political climate we have at the moment, for sure. Um, but I also believe that giving people dignity at the end of life and doing the right thing, I still think that will win out in the end. I still think it 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 will make people change their views on things. And I I think you know I, I'm I'm hopeful, Dominic. I think you have to be right. I mean, it's it's a pretty dire situation when you're dealing with people. Um, who are dying and homeless, right? So I think if you don't have if you don't have some optimism, you're going to be in in a difficult situation, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you know where this comes from for you, right? Aside from the immediate experience of you know what you what you get personally from working with people when they're going through their end of life experiences, you know where does it come from? Well, you're from the north of Ireland too, huh? I. You're, you're, yeah. So, you know, we, we went through the troubles together, right? We went, we saw all that injustice and we saw um, people suffering needlessly. And I, I think I grew up in a family and certainly my mum who passed a few years ago as well was a very strong advocate and, a, and a, you know, just believed in justice and believed in doing the right thing by people. And I just truly believe that, you know, when you're given something and you have a voice and you, you, you've been privileged because, you know, even though you and I have, you know, grown up in times that were less than less than great, you know, I, I still feel privileged that my family supported me and I got to go to medical school and all this sort of, sort of stuff, you know. And, and Absolutely. I think I think once you have curiosity, because people ask me, oh, you must be this great person because you, you started this, you know, um, program for people with homelessness and dying. But I'd say it's much, much more simple than that. I just had the curiosity, Tom, like that's all it was, right? 
I just had a curiosity and I followed the curiosity and then I went down and I listened to people and it's it's impossible not to do something when you listen to people, right? When you truly listen to people because um, it's completely unjust. It's completely inequitable what happens to other people. So you just can't come home and just go to bed and forget about it. You just think this is just wrong. It's just wrong, right? Um, so maybe it's my Northern Ireland belligerence or whatever, I don't know. Um, but I just feel it's it's unjust, right? And I think when you see injustice and you have a voice and you're able to speak for it, then I think you should do something about it, right? I think it's that simple. Where did you grow up? I grew up, uh, I was born in Uri and I um, grew up sort of, Kilkeel area, sort of South Down, sort of, and then my mum, my dad moved to Newcastle and obviously spent time in Belfast, of course, as well, but right. sort of South Down, South Down area. Right, right. You know, went to St. Coleman's and in Uri and stuff and hung around with a lot of guys in the bandit country and yeah, it's fun times, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, how, how do you look back on that? The, I mean, I guess, how do you look back? It's interesting. So here's the thing. So I, I did a radio essay, um, I know, three or four years ago for a radio station in the States because um, I was living in Seattle at the time. And uh, and the editor for this uh, little essay, she, I guess she was in her 30s or something. She didn't know what the troubles were. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I was like, oh, yeah. and I was like, what? Now, there's plenty of people of her age in the States who I spoke to who did know, but but I was just like kind of completely flabbergasted. I was like, what do you mean? She says, I think you need to put another line in here explaining what this is. And I was like, everybody knows what that is. Um, but it just really brought home to me the, the way that this kind of chasm of time opens up and how easily the things that you took for granted from the, the backdrop of your life just um, begin to fade, right? I don't know, Dominic. I think it's very, I still struggle to kind of work out what that whole period meant for me as, as growing up. I, 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 there was a lot of anger for me. There was a lot of, I was just thinking about my time in Belfast and Queens. I was very, very unhappy during that period of time. You know, I, I was really exhausted by Northern Ireland, you know. Why, um, why were you unhappy? I just was very, very unhappy. I just felt very, very, I just was weighed down. I think Northern Ireland was really weighing me down. It was it was pushing me into a, a small box of kind of possibilities. You know, the, oh, you shouldn't be doing that at your age. You know, that kind of Northern Irish kind of mm-hmm. way of thinking. It just, it was, I was being, I was being smothered in this kind of can't do mentality. Yep. Um, that I, I really, really, really struggled with. Um, you know, looking back, I don't know if going to Queens was the best uh, idea for me. I actually think I probably should have gone to a university or something because I find Queens very, very difficult. I find it very, very difficult. And I think that's why I ended up going back and um, having to go back a year and all those sort of things. I really struggled with it. I, I really was kind of unhappy. And I think deep down the unhappiness was I just, Northern Ireland was just weighing me down because um, I love it and hate it at the same time. You know, I'm very, very passionate about the fact that I'm Irish, right? Um, and I, I believe, I think, like, you, you probably feel the same way too, you know, we, we sort of get an idea of what it's like to have been, you know, one of the diaspora and what the famine meant for people. And, you know, I'm very, very aware of all the suffering that people 
went through when they were forced to leave Ireland. So yeah. I'm well aware of that because, you know, all that stuff that you go through. But for me, I don't know how you felt, but I, I just felt at a certain time around the sort of 90s, I just felt so way down by Northern Ireland. You know, I just thought, God, there's no way out of this. You know, it's mm-hmm. just you had two bars open in Belfast because you couldn't go anywhere. You know, it just was like, like Queens, just going to Queens was such a small it felt like just going to high school in a different place. You know, you felt like nothing had changed. Mm-hmm. Your, 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 I don't know, your, your wings were clipped, you know, that sort of way. It was a very, I felt it very suffocating. Do you know, since so, uh, I remember, you know, anyway, I, I, you, you talk about that, like my, I, I remember my dad saying more than one occasion. So when my, when my brother Kevin moved to Canada first, um, in the early eighties, I remember my dad saying, "Sure, he's as well. He's as well away from here. There's nothing for young people here." And he said the same to me on more than one occasion. Yeah. Right? There was, um, and I, I, I know what you mean about the, um, the suffocation of it. And I also know that I never really wanted to be part of the Irish diaspora, quote unquote. <laughs> You know, yeah, uh, going yeah, to yeah. going to Irish bars and all that. But here I am. I never felt the need of it when I was living in the States. But living in Australia, uh, for some reason, I'm listening to Irish music and producing an Irish music podcast. <laughs> and I'm totally loving it. So I don't know. It's but so funny. You can't not be aware but of the privilege people, to, to people... make... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, but, but uh, you do have to acknowledge the fact that of the, the privilege you have to be able to choose, right? Like I had a choice. Oh, huge, huge. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm not a, an economic migrant or anything like that. I did this for a bit of crack, right? I just came to Canada. I'm extremely privileged. Not only am I, I'm, I'm in one of the high, you know, the highest regarded professions in many countries, right? So I was deeply, deeply privileged, right? I'm a white person. All that, you know, the Aye. white meal, all that sort of stuff. Deeply, deeply privileged. Like I'm steeped in privilege here. Um, but I'm also talked about as that's the Irish dog. Oh yes, I'm the Irish guy. Or the I've never had so many people define me by my background because <laughs> that never happened in Northern Ireland, right? Uh-huh. So you probably <laughs> noticed this as well too. They probably say I Dominic the Irish guy. Oh, I remember that. That's the Irish dude. Or like I'm constantly referred to as that. So then you kind of think, what does that? What does that actually mean? What does it actually mean to be Irish? Like what? What does that actually mean to me? Right? Um, but I also, this is another funny thing that you must uh, feel too, Don. Like, I feel when I go back to Northern Ireland, I feel kind of a little bit pissed off when I walk around Belfast and I'm thinking, like, look at all you guys having a proper university experience with all your fancy bars and your cappuccinos. <laughs> you know, like, fuck the lot of you. I had Lavery's and the Bot, and that was it, <laughs> right? And the Crescent, if you, if you didn't want to be stabbed, you might go to the Crescent the odd time. But... You know what I mean? Like yeah, you, I do. You, you actually feel a little bit kind of pissed off. You're like, when did Belfast become so cool that people are drinking cappuccinos all the time? You know, um, well, so it's the, almost like they don't deserve their stripes. Like I had the stripes, I had to go through this shit, you know, and you guys don't have to do any of it, you know. Um, yeah, you know, it's it, a funny experience. It, funny experience. It totally is. And the the other um, aspect of this that I've been thinking about a lot recently was just. You know, if you watch too many documentaries on YouTube about about the period, you know, the Peter Taylor documentaries, any of the the BBC documentaries about it. Yeah. Um, some of them yeah. some of them very recent, some of them a bit older. 
the the sheer grinding grimness of it is fucking mind blowing to me. That that was no oh. no that wasn't Ballycastle. I get I get it. So again, I'm very conscious of my own privilege and and so so on. But still, it is extraordinary to 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 see that and think that's where I came out of, right? I, it is, I, and you know, it's funny. I said to my dad there the other day, "You might, have, you might have had the same experience." We came from, a, I would say, more of a nationalist background than a republican background. Like my my dad wasn't interested in anything that right. had to do with violence, right? Yeah, likewise. But my dad said something very interesting to me recently. You know, I think after Martin McGuinness or whatever died, and my dad says, "You know, I would never have said it, Simon, but the armed struggle needed to happen." You know, um, because like. Before that, the injustice and the sort of, you know, civil liberties and stuff and what the Catholics had to go through and just the injustice, like nothing would have changed without the shakeup. It's just very, very sad that so many people suffered right, because of that. Um, but I, I was listening to it. Have you heard the book Say Nothing? Have you listened to that at all? No, no, I don't know that. Yeah. There's a book. There's a book called Say Nothing. It's about Dolores. Uh, you remember Dolores and her friend. I can't remember, or sorry, her sister. There were two, the Kings, Dolores King and her friend. I can't remember what her friend was called. But it's about their sort of, uh, it's also about Jean McConville, that whole period, yep. right? Yep. And honestly, Dominic, like I'm, I'm listening, like I didn't want to listen to it initially, but I'm listening to it now thinking, Christ, the falls and the shankle was so grim during the 70s and 80s. Like, you know, just the way, he, it, the book is really good at describing the day-to-day -day life for people. Mm -hmm. Oh man, it's so grim, so grim. In any other society, when you look at any other traumatized society, I, I'm able to look at it and think, of course, it's just going to take generations to to unwind if it ever does, right? Um, just realizing that that you you sort of internalize it all and you normalize it, and then when you see it playing out, you're like, of course, it was fucked. It was totally fucked. It was totally fucked. Like my neighbor, I remember my my poor neighbor who was uh, like he was an RUC guy actually, and uh, I remember the day they shot him, the IRA shot him. Like, and he, I remember it very clearly because he, you know, he and my dad were fairly good friends, and he would be mowing his. They shot him around eighty three or eighty four when I was about fifteen. Um, but I remember just thinking, and then I thought to myself, I wonder what age because he always seemed about you know fifty to me. He was thirty seven. He was thirty seven years old. And they just blew the back of his head out. He was he was walking from one battalion to the other battalion in Newcastle, and some guy just came out and just point blank range blew the back of his head out. And he had two, he had two girls, two young girls, same age as me, um, and his wife. And I remember that being so shocking, how brutal and how completely pointless. Because he wasn't a bad guy, you know. He was an RUC guy for sure, uh, but he was from England, so he wasn't even born in Northern Ireland. Decent, decent guy, right? Um, and I remember just being shocked how brutal that was to just... And then you just get on with it and then it's somebody else getting stabbed the next day and, and you just think, that was fucked. Yeah. Like, that that destroyed a family, like totally destroyed a family. And then you multiply that by tenfold and say somewhere like Anderson's or the Falls Road and you just think, Christ, the amount of trauma that people witnessed, you know, was yeah. insane. Yeah. And the, you know, so so the, so the, the the other thing then is is the is the waste of it all, right? So the waste. So watching oh, these Jesus. watching these grainy films, and you just you know you see these 
these figures darting about on the, you know exactly what I'm talking about these figures darting about on these fucking brick strewn streets and the uh-huh. the pigs driving up and down and stuff and you're just I don't know the the waste of it all the waste of it all and it's all a big it's all a big game you know it's a big intelligence game it's a military game it's a oh, it's I don't know I I don't know. They're all like the 22, 18, 19, you know, 23, 24. Aye. They, and like, and we're still, we can still go to Devon and, and sit, you know, sip our cappuccinos. It does, it sort of angers me kind of thinking like all these people who just died needlessly here and nothing really changes in Belfast. People can still go and, you know, shop in Devon and, you know, it's not really influenced. It's just a huge waste of life and trauma and, um, yeah, you probably feel the same way as me. It's, it, it takes you ages to kind of digest all of that kind of wastefulness, you know. Um, and I think that's what feeds me, Dominic. To be honest with you, when it comes to, I'm just like, I can't sit and w- witness more of that shite, you know. I can't witness kind of people that they're lying, li- you know, Canada's allowing to lie in the streets at night. I mean, that's fucked, right? Yeah. Like we're actually lying, and so like when I drive by in the car, or whatever, and I'm seeing some guy lying on the street, I'm like. That's a human being lying on the street. <laughs> like, that's fucked. Yeah. Like, that's fucked, right? Yeah. When you know the government could do something about it, if they had half an, you know, an interest in doing it, like, you just, that to me is just deep, deep injustice, yeah. right? The most marginalized, the most traumatized. And yeah, you know what? You can sleep on the street as well, too. That's just so fucked, right? Yeah. Um, so I think I think it, I think it's the belligerents. I think it's the Northern Ireland belligerents. <laughs> that's what thought that we were like. I'm not going to witness that shite again. Like that's ridiculous, right? Simon Colgan, who's a doctor living and working in Calgary, in the province of Alberta, in Canada. We were chatting on Wednesday, the 27th of May, 2020.